Good morning, Cornerstone family. What a blessing to be with you and excited to spend some time in God's Word. So I would like to ask if all of you would open up your Bibles to Ezra, Ezra chapter 4. And it's an honor to welcome guests with us today. You're going to all find an outline in your bulletin. If you'd be so kind to remove that, there are some wonderful principles this chapter is going to afford us that's going to help us in our spiritual growth. In light of what Mike was just talking about, discipleship is one of the most important things for us here at Cornerstone and growing in our faith. And this passage is going to aid in that very thing. So I think I know the answer to this question, but I want to present it to you. Show of hands, how many have ever participated in tug of war or have heard of that? Going all the way back in elementary or some other times in your life. So you're familiar how it works, right? There's two teams, they're divided up and they oppose each other, and they're handed a rope. And then between them, there is a line, and the intent of the game is to pull your opponent across that line, and that team is the one that won. And wouldn't you agree, if you go back to your memory, typically the team that wins is the one that has the bigger people on the team, the ones that are stronger and more powerful, more physical. As I was looking into this and researching, I was kind of intrigued the fact that that's not exactly how tug-of-war started. Tug-of-war was actually an ancient phrase that had a definition, and the Oxford Dictionary actually provides that. It comes on the screen. Let me read it to you and help you to see how it applies to what we're looking at today. Tug-of-war, the real struggle or tussle, or a severe contest of supremacy, the decisive contest. Now, think about this. We're all on a spiritual journey. Some of you are here today, you've already put your faith in Christ Jesus. But if you are here physically or watching online, there is a certain aspect in your life that you believe in God and you recognize the spirituality of your life and you want to grow. But if you're honest with yourself, you will recognize and acknowledge that this is a battle. It's difficult. So that idea, let me walk back through that. Wouldn't you agree that most days that your spiritual journey feels like a a struggle, a real struggle or a tussle? It's like you're making one step forward and two steps back. Or look at the next part of this definition, a severe contest for supremacy. I would present to you that most of the time, if not every single day, the real issue is who's in charge? Who has authority? Is it God or is it us? Or is it the enemy, the devil? And we find ourselves in this battle of who's in charge, who's supreme. But, but I, I love this last one, the decisive contest, the decisive contest. I would present to you today that when we look at all of mankind and its history, that it boils down to the fact that it's a decisive contest for the souls of mankind. Wouldn't you agree that, that the enemy recognizes that souls are at stake And the enemy is pursuing to bring each person down and distance them from God. And yet what we celebrated last week at Easter is that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What is that? It's a decisive contest that says, make a decision to follow God. In our chapter today, the nation of Israel is engaging in a tug of war. They're in a pursuit of God. They're on a spiritual journey, just like all of you. And yet, 
because of what we just said, they are facing a spiritual battle that is looking very physical. They have real opponents. And these real opponents, as you're going to see, are intimidating and causing fear and prohibiting them from growing in their faith. So we're going to study the whole chapter, but I want to begin by reading the first five verses. And I want you to take note of what the leaders of Israel, or specifically Judah, are saying to their opponents and what the opponents are doing to try to thwart their growth. At Cornerstone, we always want to honor God. And one of the ways we do that is to stand as we read God's word. Would you follow along as I read chapter four, verses one through five? The author records, then the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing him since the time of Eshar Hadadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of King Cyrus of Persia and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Thank you, may be seated. If you're paying attention, you saw in the first five verses that the enemies of Judah set out to discourage them set out to prevent their spiritual growth. Now, before we go any further, look up at me for just a moment. I want each of you to take a minute and I want you to write on your outline, who would you say today is your opponent? Who's your enemy? Who's attacking you? Now, for some of you, as you think about that, you're thinking, I, I'm at peace with everybody. I'm not really in conflict. I don't feel like anybody's attacking me. I, I don't feel like a victim. So I want you to think further. If that's the case for you, then I would say, what entity is your opponent? And what do I mean by that? For some of you, your opponent, your enemy is your addiction. Just about the time you're making progress, your addiction comes back and knocks you down. For some of you, it's your past that you want to move forward, you want a new life, you don't want to be characterized by your parents or your history or your past, but every time you turn around, it surfaces. Maybe it was a marriage, a divorce that you were recovering from, or maybe it was a broken relationship, or maybe you got in trouble at work. Whatever it might be, that seems to haunt you, and that's your opponent. So everybody with me? You figured out exactly who or what that might be in your life? Now, it's always, always important that we have a context in the passage, and today is no different, especially since we haven't actually been in Ezra for three weeks with Good Friday, excuse me, with Palm Sunday and Easter. So let me start by giving you some historical reminders that's going to help us to understand this passage. It's a little bit complex. So going all the way back to 537 B.C., if you were with us when we started this book, we were told that the nation of Israel, because they had disobeyed God, they were worshiping other idols. And if you're not familiar with that story, it got so bad, they were literally sacrificing their children, their babies on the altar to false gods. That's how bad it was. 
God had warned them over and over that if they continued to do that, he was going to discipline them. And one of the ways he was going to do that, he was going to allow King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to conquer them and take them into captivity. So that's exactly what happened. So here we fast forward. He promised them that after that time, and I discipline you, I will bring you back to Judah and to Jerusalem. And so when we picked up the story of Ezra, it's the exiles coming back. And so it happened exactly as God promised. 150 years earlier, he promised that he'd bring him back under a king named Cyrus, who was the first king of Persia to conquer the known world. So in 537, it was the fall of 537, they come back. Within seven months, by the spring of 536, they're building the temple. They're back to worshiping the Lord. And everything's going great. But then, as you see, by the time you reach 530, it's only been six years since they started building the temple, a new king is in town, Cambius of Persia. And what we just finished reading, especially verse five, is letting us know that through that period, that entire six-year period, the opponents, the other nations around them, kept interfering and trying to prevent them from actually building the temple. And then ultimately it stopped. And for 10 years, from 530 to 520, no construction whatsoever. And what we're going to see when we end is that God intervened to stir their hearts so that they would go back to wanting to worship the Lord. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this, but if you're just joining us, it's really critical for you to understand. Because some of you are like, oh, I hate history. And it's only like 940 in the morning. I'm like falling asleep already. Should have got that extra cup of coffee. Okay, y'all with me? So you have to understand that for the nation of Israel, the temple represented God's presence. That God dwelt in the temple, the, the spirit of God. And the significance of that is that that meant that God was with them and for them. So when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple 50 years before this, that meant that for 50 years, they operate on a daily basis without a sense of God's presence. That's huge. Think about it. If you went for 50 years and you never had any sense or awareness that God was with you, that God loved you, come here every Sunday and every Sunday I remind you that God loves you and you are sons and daughters in the Most High. They didn't have any of that. So all of a sudden, now they're building the temple, awaiting God's presence and it's not coincidental that all of a sudden opposition comes in to try to prevent them from welcoming God's presence in their lives. I think you're probably already beginning to see how this is going to fit, how it applies to our lives. So it's a battle. How are battles won? Here's the first thing this text is going to tell us. Battles are won when we refuse to compromise. When we're clear about our convictions, when we know what is true and what is right, and we determine that we're not going to give in and we're not going to compromise. After you write that down, direct your attention back to verse 1 and 2. Note again about what was happening. Chapter 4, verse 1, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel is the governor of that region for the people of Israel, the people of Judah, and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you and build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificed to him since the time of Eshar Hadadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, I'm, I'm gonna alert you again that this message is gonna be a bit heavy on history. So I need you to bear with me. But if you don't understand it, this isn't gonna make any sense. So, at the time of King Solomon, I know all of you heard of King Solomon. King Solomon actually began to compromise. And one of the results is that his kingdom was divided. So most of you know there were 12 tribes of Israel. 
the Northern kingdom is what was known as Israel. And 10 of those 12 tribes then resided in the Northern part of is in that Northern part called Israel. The Southern part was Judah. There were two tribes. And if you notice in the first two verses, it referenced them, Judah and Benjamin. Everybody still with me? So what's the significance of that? In the Northern nation of Israel, they were the first to begin to compromise and worship other gods and other idols. And God sent prophet after prophet to them the same way he did to Judah and said, do not do this. Worship me only. And they continued to do so. And what resulted is that God warned them through the prophets that Assyria, a power at that time, would come in and conquer them and take them captive. And that's exactly what happened. Now, as Assyria came in, they did the same thing the Babylonians did a few years later to the tribes of Judah. And that is that they invited them to intermarry and began to worship many gods. They were polytheists. So syncretism is what exactly is exactly what happened, is that they didn't stop worshiping, worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. They worshiped a lot of different gods, syncretism, which is still happening today. The reality is, is there are many people who call on the name of God, even on the name of Jesus, but they worship a lot of different gods. There might be even some here today. You show up on a Sunday, you believe in God, you worship him, but you don't go to God on Wednesday when you need comfort. You go to a bottle or you go to a drug, or you go to Facebook, or you Instagram, or all kinds of places. There are many gods in our culture and our society that we go to rather than the one true God. And there's a danger in that. So that's what was happening. Now, one more bit of information is that when these individuals, the Jews of the North, married the Assyrians, it became known as a race called the Samaritans. If you remember that term? And so we're more familiar with that term because of the New Testament. If you go to the book of John, one of the famous passages in the Bible is that at that time, in the first century, Samaritans lived north of Jerusalem, and any Jew that was traveling from the south to the north would go all the way around Samaria because they despised the Samaritans for the very reason that we're reading right here. These are the individuals that opposed them and stopped them from building their temple. So if you go to John chapter four, Jesus doesn't go all the way around Samaria. He goes right through the middle of Samaria because he's about reaching all people. And if you're familiar with that story, he stops at Jacob's well and he did introduce himself to who? A Samaritan woman. And if you recall the story, as it begins to build, he's challenging her on her lifestyle that's probably not real godly. And as he does that, she deflects by saying, well, tell me where true worship is. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. Yes, where we're just talking about. And we worship God on the mountain. And Jesus settles that and he says, true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. And so what he's saying is he's addressing an age-old problem that started here in the 5th century BC, and that conflict happened because of compromise. Do you see how the history fits into this story and how now it's going to apply to us? Now, look at how then, if you know the background, look at how Zerubbabel responds to their invitation of saying, let us help you build the temple and worship your God because we want to worship him as well. 
Verse three, but Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Now you stop right there and you think, what's the big deal? They just wanted to worship God. Aren't we supposed to be inclusive? If someone comes to Cornerstone Bible Church and they wanna worship our Lord, aren't we supposed to welcome them? So what's the big deal? Why are they keeping them from doing that? Because I remind you that this group of people had just spent 70 years in captivity because their forefathers compromised in the same way. It would be a different story if they said, we want to worship your God, the only true God, and we want to follow God's law, his word, and worship with you in that manner. It would have been a different response, but that's not what they're asking. They were asking, we want to worship your God and we want you to accommodate us in all the other things that we want to do as well. And that's what's happening in our world today, Cornerstone family, is that your greatest danger are those that say, we want to worship Jesus, but we want to claim that Jesus is the son of God. We don't want to agree with you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There are many ways to God. We just like your Jesus. Are you tracking how this fits us and how this plays out? And you see how subtle it is, how easy we can then slide away from the pure and true gospel of Jesus Christ. So as as I say that, let me give you an illustration that's going to move to a little bit more relevant application. So I want to show this picture. How many of you love bugs? Any bug lovers here? This is called the kissing bug, the kissing bug. And it actually is found throughout all the southern, all the way from California, Florida, all across the southern regions. And it's known as a silent killer. So the way it works is that when it bites its victim, it doesn't actually deposit venom. It deposits feces with a parasite. Shargus is the name of the parasite. And in the research that's been done, in the initial stages when that happens, it's called acute, and it goes undetected. Sometimes it's a headache, body ache, fever. It can be presumed that it's the flu or a cold and nobody really notices. But that parasite stays in its victim's body, whether it's a dog or a child or a person. And as it stays, it moves into a chronic stage. In the chronic stage, that parasite begins to actually attack the brain and the heart. And one of the most consistent forms of death is that it causes arrhythmia of the heart. The doctor that's done a lot of research of this in Texas says that there are currently 300,000 people in that region that are infected by this parasite. And he talked about the fact that down in Venezuela a few years back, that this bug, there was an infestation of the kissing bug and it attacked some children that were part of an elementary school and multiple children died as a result of it dangerous, silent killer. So what's the point of that illustration? The analogy that I would make is that compromise is a silent killer for many people. And the parasite that it deposits is enticement. Enticement. If you take notes, write that down. What do I mean by enticement? How does that play out? I'll give you just some practical examples of that. Is that when we begin to compromise, first example, some folks that I've heard and I've met, it started with them making a connection with an old flame on Facebook or friends that they used to party with. And they hadn't seen him in a while. I'm like, hey. And it just starts with a little compromise of some connection and conversation. 
But then it moves to a point of enticement. There's an attraction, there's a longing, there's a memory from the past, and they begin to pursue that. And it results always in tragedy. Another example is, let's say you're looking at YouTube and all of a sudden a video flashes up and there is a, the compromise that looks at that and an enticement that says, I'm just going to click on this one time. I'm just curious. And whether that's YouTube or Instagram or other types of social media is that when you look at individuals that have got sucked into pornography, it started with a compromise that was then fostered through the parasite of enticement, enticement. And you go back to this thinking about adultery in general. I would say that probably most of you have not had an affair. You've not committed adultery. And you're listening to this part of the sermon. You're saying, this doesn't apply to me. But the reality is, is that in all of those situations, enticement leads to an emotional bond. And there are many people who have an emotional bond with someone of the opposite sex as married people they have no business having. I've told you before, Cornerstone family, it is my conviction that if you're married, you should not be having lunch or intimate conversations with people of the opposite sex when you are married because you are, you are not aware of the enemy. Your enemy is like a roaring lion seeking someone who may devour. Paul says we are aware of the schemes of the devil that he never stops and he will use any means in which to entice us and bring us down. So how do we avoid that? How do we, res how do we resist that? I, I would make this assertion that compromise deposits deadly doses of enticement. How do we resist that? Please write down 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4, 1 Peter 4, 4. And then I want to take you back to what was the result. So coming back to the text, I want to stay with the text. They resisted the compromise and giving in to the enticement of what may come from that. Look at verses four and five. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of King Darius, king of Persia. So over 20 years, nearly 26 years, this went on. Why do I bring that out at this point in, in the text? Because in many cases, if we're in this spiritual battle every single day, you're being attacked every single day. And some of you are acutely aware of that. And you resist the temptation to compromise. You avoid the enticement and you do pretty well. But here's the part that I really want you to be mindful of your enemy and how he works. He will leave you alone. When he sees that you're serious, he will leave you alone. But what will happen is he will come back with a vengeance and he will bring all kinds of temptation. It'll feel like it's never going to end. And that's one of the things that we have to be mindful of as we go further in the study today is that when the enemy is relentless and he keeps on attacking and, and antagonizing you, how do you keep moving forward and persevering? That's a really important part that we're gonna see in this. But I bring you back before we go to point two, look again at your paper. Who's your opponent? Who is it you're battling? Because one of the things that I want you to be mindful of, and if you're taking notes, you can write this passage down. It's 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And especially as you move down to, through that chapter, you get to verses three through six. Paul says that you and I do not wage war like the world wages war. We do not do battle the way the world battles. We're gonna see that more in the second point. But if we do, that's one of the places where we're gonna fall. We're gonna fail every single time. And when you get to that passage in 1 Peter tomorrow, and when you read it, 
Peter's going to talk about the very thing that we just witnessed. He's going to say that when you say no to your worldly friends, to your past, to your temptation, you're going to think that people are going to stand up and applaud and like, you are such a person of character. You're so noble. Way to go. No, he says, they will actually heap abuse on you. They will attack with greater intensity. But he goes on to make this statement. He declares that we need to be sober-minded. And that's one of the key things, if you're going to persevere, is you need to take what we're talking about seriously. You need to be sober-minded. And that brings us to the second thing, is that battles are won when we resist condemnation. Every one of us here and everyone online have experienced condemnation. And it comes from a variety of sources. But let me take you to the text, and let me show you how it plays out, and then we'll bring it back to our lives and how it fits. So in chapter four, verses six to 23, it's called an excursus. You may not be familiar with that term, but basically it's used quite often in ancient literature. And what it is, is that the author will insert a bit of information that is not current in regards to the narrative. So just as a reminder, this is called the historical narrative. It's a true story. But we always in the West think sequentially. And that's part of the reason why I gave you the calendar of events so that you don't get confused. But this section from chapter, chapter four, verse six, all the way to 23 actually happens like 26 years later. And so what we're gonna see is that Nehemiah is actually referenced to the time of Nehemiah. And some of you say, what are we gonna do when we're done with Israel? We have to go to Nehemiah. It's a sequential, it's part one and two. If we're really gonna understand what's happening, how they respond and how it fits our lives. And so by this time, we are three kings away from Cyrus. Remember how I told you that Cyrus' reign ended in 530 and Cambius began? And it was that period of 530 to 520 where no construction happened whatsoever. And so here we're going to pick up then after that, there is Artaxerxes. And now the wall is being built. So let me read what they say, the condemnation, the leaders at that time. And then I'll bring it back to what does it mean to us today? Everybody still with me then? All right, I'm going to pick up then to read the letter that they wrote to King Artaxerxes, beginning in verse 12. It says, The king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since you are under obligation to the palace, excuse me, since we are under obligation to the palace and it's not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so the search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. And in these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedation and is why the city has been destroyed. We inform the king that if the city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. So trans-Euphrates means across the river. So coming back to this specific time of Nehemiah, I already told you that the temple represented God's presence. The wall represented God's protection. And so what was happening here in the future that this author brings up so that we have a context, he's saying is that Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem. He sees the walls all knocked down and he says, this is not honoring to our God. The walls need to be rebuilt so that we have a confidence of God's presence and his protection. And I want to say that to you, that these are two most important things in your life is God's presence and his protection. 
And many times when we have compromised, backing up slightly, is that we're missing the assurance of God's presence and his protection in our lives. And we will then apply all different types of things to feel protected and safe. And what we need to realize is that we need to go to God first for our protection and our assurance of his presence. But we also need to understand that when that happens, attack will take place. Condemnation will be a part of it. So we can be confident the same letter that was sent to King Artaxerxes a number of years later was the same type of letter that was sent to Cambius in 530. It brings up all the things that the nation of Israel had done wrong and basically says, you cannot trust them. It's condemning them. It's saying, look out for them. And that often happens to all of us. We come under condemnation. Might be from a spouse, might be from a brother or sister, might be from a friend, might be from a variety of things, or it could be from the enemy himself. And when that happens, a number of things begin to unravel in the battle. Now, let me give you another illustration to say, why does the enemy use condemnation in all of our lives? So that we then know, if we know why, how do we respond to that? Do you ever find that it seems like you go through seasons like days or weeks where you're getting just tons of scam calls? Does that happen to all of you? I've seen this happen over and over. Like I'll go for two or three weeks and not get any of those calls. But then all of a sudden I'll have a day, I'll be in a half a dozen different meetings. And every time I turn around and my phone's ringing, I glance down and it says possible scam. Why does that happen? And, and why do we witness that? Well, there are a few reasons. The first of it is that your number is being sold to scammer groups. So once your number is obtained, they're sold to different groups and they seek to get your information to steal your money. And there are a variety of different ways that they're going to do that. They will pose to be salesmen for insurance or perhaps your insurance company, a representative of your insurance company. They might be someone, if you bought a car, that will call about your warranty or the possibilities of trading your car into the dealer and getting a nice price for it. They'll use whatever means they can, but they do that because they purchased your number and they now have access. The second thing that oftentimes happens is because at one time you answered the call. You looked at it and it had an error code that looked familiar and you're thinking, oh, I think this might be my doctor. I might be so-and-so. And you answer that. As soon as you answer, they now see that you are willing. You don't know all of your numbers. You don't have them all on your phone and they will keep calling and they'll use different numbers until they get you and they'll try a different scam and a different means. But one of the things is your number could be public. He said, no, no, my, my, private, my number is unlisted. But every time you download an app onto your phone and you don't read the terms and conditions, that in that particular place, many times part of the terms and conditions is saying that your number is now going to be public once you download that. Did you know that? Do you know there's really a fourth reason in the research I did of why it happens? Because it works. It works. They said in, in 2021, $29.8 billion were lost by Americans. That's a lot of moolah. And you know why the enemy condemns you? Because it works. Let me show you. I'll take you back to the text. I want to read you Artaxerxes' response. Pick up with me in verse 18. The letter you sent has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order, and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates. He's talking about David, and he's talking about Solomon. And taxation, tri tribute, and duty were paid to them. 
Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interest? Why do I read that part to you? Because it was all true. Everything he, when he looked in the archives, it was absolutely true. What these individuals that were condemning them is they were building their argument upon a history of Israel. Yeah, when King Solomon was in charge, the entire region paid taxes to him. And when they sinned and other countries came in like Babylon or Egypt, they would rebel against them. And so this king at this particular time, we don't have time to go into it, but we'll look at it in the days ahead. His kingdom is being threatened by the Greeks and he is looking at anyone who is going to resist him. And so when this news comes to him, he's like, these people are trouble. You know how that happened? It's because they stopped doing the work. If they had continued pressing forward, they would have already finished the temple and probably already finished the walls. But in their neglect and putting it off, that was the result. Next week, we're gonna get more into this, but, but I wanna insert briefly that that represents you. And it's really important for some of you. It represents some of you is that in 10 years, you've not grown spiritually. If you look back 10 years, you're in the same place spiritually that you were 10 years ago. You're very much like the children of Israel, some of you. You, you. you love God, you want God, but every time there's attack, there's opposition, you decide, I'm just gonna lay low. I'm not gonna get involved. I'm not gonna be in a small group. I'm not gonna serve in ministry. I'm just gonna come and I'm gonna try to be faithful in that way. And you're asking yourself, why do I still struggle with some of the same issues, the same attitudes? Why do I have the same conflicts in my relationships? It's because you've not continued the work that God has given you. And that's exactly what happened to them. And when you do that, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. And one of the things that gets worse is condemnation. The enemy will condemn you over and over. I want you to write down for Wednesday a passage to look at. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 especially. As I already argued, all of us experience this. I can't tell you, it's almost on a, week, a daily basis, for sure a weekly basis. But there have been multiple times, we're in the last song and I'm standing right there at the bottom of the steps and a sin that I committed 35 years ago will flash through my mind. And the subsequent thought is, who are you to get up and preach to these people? And then if I give in to that, you know what fear comes? Is that if someone came from your past and showed up here on a Sunday morning and started talking about what you used to do, you would be done. Now, that may be extreme for some of you, but I guarantee you that, that you've experienced a certain level because that's what the enemy does over and over and over again. And the trouble is, is that we tend to respond to condemnation in a worldly manner, not in a spiritual manner like we're talking about. Think about that. Uh, let's, let's use marriage, for example. There's not a married couple here that's not been in a fight. And if you say so, you're lying in church. <laughs> and let's just talk about how that oftentimes plays out is that your spouse accuses you of something and then you feel threatened and attacked and you try to dismiss it. You're like, no, that's not, that's not right. I don't always do that. And then what begins to happen is, is that the argument begins to escalate. And as a result, you begin to return, return tack. Well, well let, me, let me tell you what you do. Let me tell you, this is, this is how you respond all the time. And all of a sudden, it begins to escalate. Is this sounding familiar, how that happens in these kind of battles? And, and I use marriage as an example, but it's true. Same thing. It can happen at work. It can happen with your family. It can happen with your friends. Is that when you feel condemned and you don't apply what Scripture says, you either deny it or you return fire. You return attack. And it escalates. 
The reality is what we need to do, and that's what the nation of Israel should have done, going all the way back to when a letter was written about building the temple, is what they should have done is, number one, acknowledge. If you're taking notes, you can write this down, and I'll come back to, this leads back to Romans 8.1. You need to acknowledge it. Because the great majority of time, your spouse, your coworker, your friend, they're speaking some truth. It may not be 100% truth, but they're speaking some truth. And you need to acknowledge it. You need to acknowledge your sin. But the second thing is you need to confess it. You need to humble yourself. And to your spouse, you need to confess. And you say, you know what? I may not agree with the volume of what you're saying, but you're right. I have failed and I've done that. But that's the place where you come back to the Lord and you claim what Christ has done. We just celebrated Easter. What a wonderful day. Good Friday. What was that all about? That Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners like you and me. The enemy that wants to condemn. Write this passage down, Revelations chapter 12, 10. It's not gonna stop, Cornerstone family. You get all the way into the tribulation and we're told in chapter 12 that the enemy is still coming to accuse and condemn and he's titled, have you heard this before? The accuser of the brethren and the sisters. Satan is the accuser. He's going to accuse you of wrongdoing. He did it to Job. He's going to do it to you. He's going to do it to Christians in the future. He's going to come back over and over and say, you're guilty. I know your sin. But you know what? If you put your faith in Christ Jesus, hear me, look up at me now. You are not guilty because Jesus Christ paid for that sin. And that's where you need to land in the midst of your arguments and conflicts. You need to come back to saying, I am guilty, but Christ Jesus has forgiven me of my sin. I can be a better husband, a better wife, a better parent because of what Christ has done for me. Move forward. Don't get stuck like the children of Israel in condemnation and stop building that temple. God has something better for us. All right, here's number three. Battles are won when we resort to prayer. We're going to talk more about this, so I'm not going to try to unpack all this. But if you take notes, you can write this one passage down. It's Haggai chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 12. If you remember a few weeks ago, I told you that Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries of Zerubbabel. And so God puts it upon Haggai's heart in 520 and says, go talk to those guys. They are slacking. Let me show you what the result was in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Follow along. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the message of the Lord to the people. I'm with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. Do you notice what happened there? That their spirit was stirred that they felt compelled. They went back to their original convictions before they compromised. And they said, we're going to do what God has told us to do. And I would argue when you look at the larger context is that it wasn't just the sermon that they heard, it was the prayer accompanying it. And I would say that's gonna be the most important thing for you in this particular chapter is going back to the idea of prayer. Please write down Ephesians chapter six, Ephesians six verses 10 to 18. Paul says, you and I do not battle flesh and blood, but we battle rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world. That applies both spiritual and physical. 
So that means that there are individuals, there might be your boss, it could be the governor, it could be a variety of different individuals who are not in submission to God and have God's spirit, and they don't realize it, but they are operating as in their rulership and their authority under the power of darkness. Because the next thing that Paul will go on to say, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So he makes a distinction between physical opponents and spiritual opponents. But what he's explaining in that passage, that all of them are under the power of the evil forces of the heavenly realms, Satan, his demons, so on and so forth. I wish we had more time to unpack some of that, but I just want to give you a bit of a landscape, exactly what is happening here and how does that fit our lives. So he's going to finish by saying, put on the full armor of God. So your assignment, when you read this passage in Ephesians on Friday, is ask yourself of the spiritual armor that he lists, which of those items are you lacking or weak in? Because that's where your enemy is going to attack you over and over again. And prayer becomes a real critical part. So here's the big idea the take on truth and that we need to remember that our battles are God's battles, not ours. Our battle are God's battles. If you get into it with someone, you're, you're, you're in the flesh. You're not fighting a spiritual battle. You need to come back to the Lord. I want to finish by reading a passage from Deuteronomy that was told to the nation of Israel before they went into the promised land and still relevant to us. As it comes on the screen, would all of you read it out loud with me? Let's say it together. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters today. I don't know who their enemy or opponent is. I know Satan is for all of us, but in some cases it's cancer. In other cases it's fear. It's a boss. It's a neighbor could even be a family member, a spouse. But give them a peace and let them know that you have them covered. Be the wall that goes around them and protects them. Let them know that their future is secure in you, that their eternity has been settled, and their names are written on your book of life if they put their faith in you. And I pray from that that they would lose all fear and apprehension and live in a place of peace that you've given them. It's in your son's name I pray, amen.